0: Go listen to all the prior episodes. That's right. Welcome back, rockers, to Extra Credit the Rock You Podcast. This is episode nine. I'm sitting here with Matt Black, <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend.
1: Hello there, Seth. <laughs> Happy to be here as always.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to be here too. And today we're going to do our top 5 musical collaborations. Now, I think both of us did our lists and left off super groups. So, not the Traveling Wilburys or the Highwaymen or I can't think of another super Asia, group Derek and the
1: Dominoes, Yeah. That, a cream. And and stuff. I should I think we should specify as we often have to for one or two listeners out there, our top 5 Rock collaborations.
0: Yes, because this is, extra credit, the
1: Rock You podcast. But Uh, we also left off, and I don't know if you did, I did. Maybe you didn't. I left off anything that I thought was uh, in hip-hop or pop. Recently, especially because collaborations become the rule of thumb in recent hip hop and pop. And so it's hard to find a song that's not a collaboration now. So I try to stick to rock.
0: Well, I did too. But if it's uh, at least one of the collaborators had to be a rock artist in my eyes. Now, right. they're, they're, you could collaborate with people from other genres, but I didn't pick anything just directly from rap, directly from hip-hop, directly from country or something else like that. So Gotcha. So, who's going first, you or me? Up to you. You go first.
1: All right. Well, we didn't do, uh, what are you wearing today? Wait, what are you wearing today? <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you know what this means, the shirt I'm wearing? Uh, He's looking at it. It's I'm a black at, star with a bunch at, of
0: weird black shapes. With on it. weird black shapes on a white background. Yeah. One of them looks like a, a small Star Trek insignia, uh, and other looks like parts of Star. I don't know. I don't know what that is.
1: Well, we probably should ask you what you're wearing first, because this directly directly relates to my number five. But I'll tell you, this okay. is the logo. For David Bowie's final album, Black Star. Oh, Black
0: Star, yeah. And if you
1: look carefully, those weird star segments on the bottom, they actually spell out Bowie. Oh, they can you, do. Can you see it? I see it. Yeah, yeah, I see it. So we'll come back to Blackstar, but what are you wearing, Seth?
0: I'm wearing my U2 Live in Paris t-shirt that's got the picture of the band on it with a faded red, white, and blue. And the funny thing is, they did red, white, and blue instead of blue, white, and red. So somebody at the U2 t-shirt shop messed up the coloring for Interesting. France. But, Interesting. Uh,
1: well, maybe that was on purpose. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, Live in Paris, you'd yeah, think it you'd would think. go blue, white, red. But, yeah. Okay. All so, you're number five. I'll jump into my number five, which is Black Star by David Bowie. Now, we could actually do a whole podcast on the many layers of meaning in the album Black Star. But just briefly, it was his final album. Right. It was intended as his swan song because he knew that he was dying of liver cancer. He hadn't right. revealed that. Nobody knew. And he died two days after the album was released. And even though, I don't know how it's done commercial, commercially, excuse me, but many, many people regard this as one of his best albums. I do. I think it is actually his best best album and one of the reasons that i love it so much is because of the collaboration that he did he wanted to do an album that wasn't a rock album and he hired some of the the brightest young guns in jazz to play as the session players on the album and i didn't know their names because i'm not a well-versed in jazz but here they are i'm going to tell you it's the the sax player is donnie mccaslin the pianist is Jason Lindler. The bassist is Tim Lefay, is how I'm, I'm assuming that name is pronounced, L-E-F-E-B-V-R-E. And uh, the drummer is Mark Juliana, and the guitarist Ben Monder. And there's also, not exactly a cameo, but James Murphy from LCD Sound System played some percussion on the album as well. Okay. And the album, if you haven't heard it, I do encourage you to go listen. You can hear one of the tracks right now, as a matter of fact.
0: Look up here, man, I'm in danger left to lose I'm so high it makes my brain whirl Drop my cell phone down below
1: what changes everything about this album is the way these jazz musicians approach these songs and particularly the rhythm section the bass and drums on this album are very powerful i love the album i think it's a great album again i don't know if it got the commercial success that went along with the critical success but uh i do believe that bowie left with his finest work on the table cool and i should mention by the way that was one of my criteria for picking my top five was albums where or excuse me not albums collaborations that were more than the sum of their parts where neither one of the collaborators and none of the collaborators could have achieved the same result without the collab- other collaborators there're plenty of collaborations where yeah okay so Stevie Wonder plays harmonica on a Sting song but someone else could have played harmonica too maybe not quite as well but it didn't make not the song not quite as well exactly as, yeah, yeah but it didn't Wonder, make the song and yeah. this album is made by David Bowie's vision David Bowie's voice and the jazz musicians that played the instruments. I will say there's fascinating, fascinating backstory on this album, but we, I won't bore you with all of it. Where he got the name Black Star comes from an Elvis song that was never released. Oh, wow. Yeah. How, why he chose the content that he chose and what it meant about his life and career. So go go do some reading. You'll love it. Cool. And listening.
0: All right. So I'll tell you a little bit about how I picked my list. I went through songs. I just went stuck with songs, didn't go for entire albums. And I went with collaborations that, a lot like you say, Matt, couldn't have been done without those people doing it. And I tried to have it look at collaborations that had other meanings that went along with it. So, it wasn't just, wow, that's a great song. That's a great song that has some history to it or something that pushed people's careers further or had some other
1: meaning to it. Yeah, so Before you say your first one, okay. I have a prediction. And All like, right. a- as per usual, you and I have not shared our list That's with That's right. Other. We have not. So I don't know what's on your list. You don't know what's on mine. Right. I have a pr- prediction that in uh, nine episodes, I guess one of them, the one with Rory Quinn was not a top five list, but I have a prediction that this is the first time that we're going to have a duplicate on our lists. You think? I do.
0: Duplicate as in? You and I will have picked in, the same. As in the song or the artist? The song. Oh, okay. the artist we've done before. Okay. All right, let's see. For my number 5, we already have the same artist. Okay. So, my number 5 is Let's Dance by David Bowie and on guitar Stevie Ray Vaughan. Now, I think we've mentioned this before that Stevie mm-hmm. Ray went to the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1982. And he and Double Trouble played a set, and Bowie was there and saw him and said, you're going to play guitar on my next record. And Bowie actually helped get them signed to their first record deal and put out Texas Flood. You know, after that, the rest is history. So Stevie plays on Let's Dance, and it's a great 80s dance tune. And it's got two very sparse, but definitely SRV solos in it. One in the middle and one at the end. It's a very 80s song. It's kind of bongo heavy which actually works really well with the tune it's a great collaboration it helps start the career of one of the best blues slash rock guitarists of all
1: time so no doubt about that yeah definitely now i should mention by the way i considered less dance too and I, I i'm sure you did <laughs> i decided not to use it i set myself a, another criterion that i didn't mention oh i decided that to be a true collaboration from my at least my my list no 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 shade on yours <laughs> both are if it was more than one all the collaborators had to be well known to some degree so stevie ray wasn't really all that well known i think outside not of his then, not yeah. So, yeah before at this time so you know Jimi hendrix played in the Isley brothers band and both I did not know that both both Elton John and Jimmy Page were session musicians on the song It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones. Did you know oh, that? Oh wow, I did not know <laughs> that either. I
0: <laughs> yeah, knew some... Jimmy Page was, but I didn't know Elton that. Elton John, John also was yeah. So there's
1: That's a lot of awesome. there's a lot of cool stories. Billy Joel played on He was 15 years old and he played on, oh man, I can't remember the very, a very famous track and I can't remember what it is. I'll have to look that up. We'll take care of that and take two. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. What's your number four? Well, my number four is a song and I didn't know this was a collaboration until I decided to do a little research for this episode. Um, It's a song I like a lot. It's You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Oh yeah. And what I didn't know about the song was that, uh, well, let me start at the beginning. Alanis Morissette was a more of a pop artist, wasn't super well known. Uh, got a new label, got a new contract and was working with a new producer and she really had a lot to say and she, had, yeah, she, she had an attitude. She had a chip on her shoulder about what she had to say and her producer wanted her to be commercially successful and tried to talk her out of, well, try to talk her out of speaking her truth and she refused. And when she did, he said, okay… She's got something. So we're going to put out this track. You ought to know. We're going to let her drop F-bombs and all kinds of other things on it. And they recorded a track, but it just didn't satisfy anybody. And they sent it to, and I did not know this until today, they sent it to Dave Navarro, who at the time was the guitarist for Red Hot Hot Chili Peppers, Peppers, one of their many guitarists. And he played played it for Flea. And the two of them said, and Flea is quoted, I'm going to clean this up. That's some weak stuff. (laughs) So they flew in and recorded a new bass and a new guitar track for You Ought to Know, which really worked with Alanis' vocal and the great drum track that's on there. And that made the song, and it was her first hit, and obviously she became a star. And the guy who played the drums? Not on this, not on this track. Oh, again. was it? Not Taylor, Taylor Hawkins? Hawkins on this track. Oh. Yeah, he did, did. He did play out? on Alanis a lot of Alanis tracks, but not this one. I don't know about this album at all. This was her debut album in the sense that it was the most, the first one that was truly commercially successful. Right. Yeah, jagged
0: little, so little big label. Jagged Little Pill yeah. made a lot of money. Yes,
1: <laughs> made <laughs> a lot of fans too. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's so you true. ought to know. That's my number four. So my number four. Is
0: Have a Cigar by Pink Floyd and the vocals are by a guy named Roy Harper. Now, most of you guys probably don't know who Roy Harper is. He's more of a folksy type vocalist. He was actually in the studio at Abbey Road. I believe he was in Studio 3 and Pink Floyd was recording in Studio 2. And Roger Waters had strained his voice too much while recording Shine On You, Crazy Diamond. And he decided that he couldn't go for Have a Cigar. Hmm. And Dave Gilmore was like, I don't want to sing that song (laughs) because Have a Cigar is actually thumbing their nose at the music industry. Roy Harper was down the hall and they said, hey, man, would you come in here and sing this? And he said, "Uh, sure. And launched into it. And the song's from the point of view of the record executive. And I think it's a great thing that Pink Floyd records this song and the record executive is Roy Harper, who is not a member of the band. Perfect. Yeah. And it allowed them to have that song and have it played on the radio and just have them say, well, that's not our voice. (laughs) It's not our voice saying that. So getting a third party to say it for them, which is something I'm vastly familiar with as an attorney. I love the song Have a Cigar. I think it's my favorite Pink Floyd song. And it's on Wish You Were Here from 1975. Great, great record. The sass in the vocal part and in the lyrics. Gosh, you guys are great. That's really what I think. And by the way, which one's Pink? <laughs> That's yeah. a
1: great lyric. It's such a great One of their lyric. best. I'll yeah. admit that to this day, I didn't, uh, until now, I did not know that wasn't Roger Waters singing that part.
0: So. Yeah, because Roy Harper's yeah. voice sounds a lot like it's in between Roger Waters and David Gilmour. Hmm. I have to go back and listen to them. Uh, if you hear some of the live versions that they recorded when they were still recording live as Pink Floyd with Roger Waters, they tra- I, I forget if they trade off singing it or if Gilmour sings it, but if you listen to a live version and you listen to Harper, you're like – there's there's not that much difference because their yeah. voices are really similar.
1: Cool. On to my number three. Um, this one is a collaboration between really two rising or superstars, rising stars or superstars, and it's uh, Silk Sonic, the latest. Oh yeah. Collaboration between Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack and a bunch of other really excellent musicians. But what I like about this is retro 50s style music has been in for a little while now. So you got yeah. a lot of artists that are going back to uh, going back to these roots of rock and roll. Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack both have a lot of respect for these classic songs, this classic era, but they did something together where they they shared their talents and they they pooled their appreciation for this kind of music to create something that is clearly of this day and yet takes the best of that music. And you can pick, I went with two albums and three songs on my list, this is the other album, you can pick any song and why don't you pick Leave the Door Open? (laughs) And you can hear, I, I think you can hear what each one brings to this project, especially in the case of Leave the Door Open, how mm. Bruno Mars is singing the choruses, Anderson Pack is singing the vocals with his or the, excuse me, the verses with his sort of trademark wink and a grin, his humor, yeah. and uh, obviously he's playing drums too, Bruno yeah. Mars is probably playing something, I'm imagining some keys or guitar, and uh, it's just a great album, it's just, you can't help but smile through this whole album, all the songs are great, and it is truly something that they created together that they could not have created by themselves.
0: All right, so my number three is a song called Good Times by NXS and Jimmy Barnes. Unless you're an NXS fan, or you really like the movie The Lost Boys from mid-'80s, because <laughs> that's the, the song originally came out on the Lost Boys soundtrack. I do like that movie. Yeah. This song is a really rollicking party tune with Michael Hutchinson, Jimmy Barnes, trading verses, and then they sing together on the chorus. And the way those guys sing together is amazing. NXS put out some really good tunes that had a lot of power behind them, but this is the one that whenever I hear it, I turn it up two notches, not just one. It's really a tour de force for both of them, and I really think it's the highlight of the NXS catalog. Now, in 1998, when Michael Hutchins passed away, I didn't know this, but Jimmy Barnes, took over the lead vocals for NXS on their tour. I didn't know that and either finished out the tour for hmm, them. Wow. That year. It was, I'm sure, bittersweet for him to yeah. step in and do that after that collaboration. But he's probably the one guy that could have stepped in and done that because Hutchins had such such a great voice and such great stage presence.
1: Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all and I can't I can't place that why don't you play the song? All right. Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Now I got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you ready for my number two? I'm ready for your okay. number two. I've probably mentioned this on this podcast before. I've certainly mentioned it to many, many people at Rock You. <sighs> but the song Superstition was actually written for Jeff Beck. Yeah. What happened was Stevie Wonder uh, was going to do the album Talking Book, and he wanted to do something that took his music – he was already a well-known star, but he wanted to do something to take his his music to a new level, integrate a lot of other styles. And he said, I'd like to work with this Jeff Beck guy. And Jeff Beck, obviously a legendary guitarist. Not much of a singer. (laughs) I don't know if he ever sang, but uh, legendary guitarist for sure. Great guitarist, Yeah. yeah. So he said, Jeff. Be- he, said, he asked Jeff Beck if he would come just collaborate with him in the studio for a little while, developing some sounds and some ideas for his album, Talking Book, yeah. which is my favorite Stevie Wonder album. And in exchange, he would write a song for Jeff Beck. Not and, a bad deal. Yeah, not a bad deal. Well, here's what happened. So they're in the studio. Stevie leaves the studio for a few minutes, and Jeff Beck sits down behind the drum kit and starts playing a groove with a very distinctive opening fill, which any drummer which will knows. Play, which will play right Let's here. Let's hear it right here. Stevie comes back in the studio and says, keep playing, jumps behind his clavinet and improvises the hook that you hear throughout the song. For superstition. For superstition. That's crazy. They record a quick demo. Stevie hands it to Jeff Beck and says, here, here's your song. So Jeff Beck goes and and records the song with his power trio, Beck Boggart and a piece, Carmen a piece on drums. Carmine a piece. Yeah, that guy's a beast. And it gets stuck... Somewhere in one of these black holes in record companies where they can't release yeah. something for some reason. And I, I forget why. Quincy Jones, meanwhile, is listening to this and he's like, Stevie, you got to record this for yourself. And <laughs> that's too good so to let Stevie of. calls up Jeff Beck, says, hey, do you mind if I record Superstition? Jeff Beck says, okay. And Stevie does. And have you ever heard Jeff Beck's version? No. Because no. who would listen to that after listening to Stevie after Wonder's version? Stevie's version? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's out there. You can hear it. It's not, I mean, it's the same song in some ways, but, uh, and I, what I love about this collaboration isn't just that it was an amazing collaboration, but that it was a guitarist who came up with that drum part, yeah. which is really key to that song. That opening fill is is key to the song. And it was played on the track by Stevie Wonder. On drums. Yes.
0: Like I yeah. said, best multi-instrumentalist ever.
1: Second best after Prince. <laughs> we can <laughs> we can debate that one. Go back and listen to episode four or five. I'm not sure which one. Wherever it was.
0: <laughs> Go listen to all the prior episodes. That's right. And just find it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's my number two, Superstition.
0: So my number two is Bring the Noise by Public Enemy and Anthrax. It's a great one. Anthrax being the thrash metal band that they are. I don't know how they got hooked up or just if it was just the respect that Public Enemy had for them as musicians. The Public Enemy Anthrax version is on the album Apocalypse 91 The Enemy Strikes Black. And it's a new version of the original version of Bring the Noise that's on It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which was from 1988. In the original version, Chuck D raps. in the middle of a verse about how rap is for everybody, including Sonny Bono and Yoko Ono. <laughs> <laughs> Who else puts what that together? What a great yeah. lyric. Yeah. Beat is for Sonny Bono, beat is for Yoko Ono. Fantastic. Uh, so it's only fitting that they got in the studio and redid this with Anthrax. Now, I would encourage you to go listen to the original first and then listen to what they do with Anthrax. They take the beats and the samples and some of the stuff that that they had going in the background of the original track. And Anthrax either plays it on guitar or drums, or they sing it. They sing some of the background noise that goes into the back of it. And it's just, it's off the chart wonderful. And uh, f- as far as bringing metal and rap together in one track, in one song, that makes it all work together, That I, I don't think I've ever heard anything better than that. So
1: Very cool. Yeah. We're down to our number ones. We are down to our I'm number I'm starting ones. to doubt my prediction. I was I'm, positive we were going to overlap at least one track. I don't think we're going to. I don't think we're going to either.
0: So what's your number
1: one? My number one, I believe stands head and shoulders above all other collaborations in rock okay i think it is maybe the most influential rock song of all time which is saying a lot that's saying a whole lot and it's beat it by michael jackson everybody knows that eddie van halen played the guitar solo on beat it if you didn't know that, you know it now. You know it so now. So now everybody knows. But there's more. Okay, so, there is
0: more. So, And I think I know where you're going with well, this. Well,
1: I'm going a few places. But where, I, where I'm going, first of all, is that Michael Jackson, when he made uh, Beat It with Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones said, I think you should include a rock. Actually, I, think, I can't remember which one of them had the idea first, but it was, I think you should do a rock song. And so Michael yeah. Jackson went home and wrote what he would write if he was writing a rock song, which was Beat It. And Quincy Jones called up Eddie Van Halen and said, will you play a solo on a track by Michael Jackson? Eddie Van Halen said, who is this? And hung up the phone, (laughs) assuming it was a prank call. Quincy called him back. He realized it wasn't a prank call. And Eddie Van Halen not only agreed to do it, he agreed to do it for free because he wanted to do it so much.
0: And the rest of the members of Van Halen thought he was Uh, insane. When they
1: found out, they (laughs) were like, what the hell were you doing? And he said, no, crazy like a fox. He went in. He recorded the solo twice. One of them was chosen. Legend has it, and it's too good to check, legend has it that one of the studio speakers caught fire the second time he played the solo, (laughs) and that was the one they used. So the story doesn't quite end there. First of all, most people who do know that Eddie Van Halen played the solo also assume that he played the guitar riff, but it wasn't Eddie who played that riff. The the hook of the guitar, which is like the the thing that everybody thinks of when you hear Beat It, Uh, that was played by Steve Lukather from Toto, yeah. And Jeff and Steve Porcaro from Toto were also playing on the session on keys and drums. Yes. So... This is an amazing collaboration, first of all. The guys from Toto, even though they were pretty well-known, were still playing Sessions because they were so good, everybody wanted to have have them play. They were phenomenal Session musicians. They played
0: for tons and tons of people. And when they started with Toto, their uh, Session
1: musician buddies were like, what are you guys doing? You're blowing your gig. And they're like, no, we'll (laughs) still be playing. And they were. The influence of this track is hard to imagine today. If you didn't grow up at the time, like you and I did. Oh, it was huge. Yeah, because really up until that point despite a few efforts you know in the other direction there was still a segregation of music typically oh completely black musicians made one kind of music white musicians made a different kind of music and every once in a while they'd wave to each other across the gulf but it wasn't really like that yeah. and this ended that rock and black music which at the time was R&B. mostly r&b soul and yeah. soul and, and and emerging rap and hip-hop the the wall came down and the other thing that happened was the kind of music that other black musicians were making suddenly was all over FM rock radio yeah, and on MTV, and Michael Jackson became an international megastar, and the rest is really history because everything you've heard since Beat It owes something to Beat It. It's in the discussion for the most influential rock songs of all time, and it's a great collaboration.
0: Now, did you know that Eddie went into the studio without Michael being there and recorded those two solos? I did and he said you need to rewrite this and he rewrote part of the song told the guys <laughs> to record it like that and when michael came back he left him a note cuz they i don't think that they saw each other that day he left him a note said hey hope you don't mind i rewrote part of your song and michael was like it's better <laughs> i also, he went with that version
1: yeah and i also know that one of the changes that he made was he moved it from the key of e flat which is a very common key in a lot of soul and R&B music because for among other, among other reasons, it's an easy key for horns to play. Yeah. And it's just habit. A lot of songs are in E-flat. He moved it to E. Now, E-flat is the worst key for a guitarist or a bassist because you can't use most of your low E string. Right. And you, can, you can't you can play the open string unless you tune your guitar down. And I'm happy to know that even an accomplished guitarist like Eddie Van Halen didn't want to play an E-flat because I don't <laughs> like playing in <an> E-flat. <laughs> I take flack from it for horn player, from horn players. And I'm glad to know I'm not the only one even eddie needed a, needed a little help there all right so my number one my
0: t-shirt should have tipped you off but i don't know if you're going to get the collaboration my number one is the saints are coming by u2 green day and on the live version trombone
1: shorty i didn't know about the live version i'm a huge trombone shorty fan i didn't know there was... the song was
0: born out of the effort to help new orleans after the devastation of hurricane katrina if you guys don't remember 2005, Hurricane Katrina came through and almost wiped New Orleans off the map. Like, half the population of New Orleans left New Orleans. The the Ninth Ward was flooded out. The Ninth Ward is where a lot of the musicians live. U2, being the band that they are, loves to help people out. The Edge actually started a charity called Music Rising to help the musicians in New Orleans because he knows how much New Orleans has given to rock and roll music. And then they recorded this song with Green Day and the proceeds of it, all the proceeds of the single went to Music Rising to help the musicians in New Orleans. Now, the live version of the song was recorded at the first New Orleans Saints game in the Superdome after the storm and they did mm. it pre-game and then with by the time the game was over it, I forget what the music service was that they it wasn't Spotify because I don't think they were out at that point mm. but they put it up live for people to download it it was a, a huge hit for both you YouTube hear and Green Day but the live version is the one you got to go listen to because it's just amazing the back and forth between the two bands and they're both of the bands are playing together That's and so trombone cool. shorties there and it's it's amazing.
1: Definitely going to watch that or listen to that. Trombone Shorty is a big deal in New Orleans. Trombone Shorty is,
0: (laughs) if you don't know who Trombone Shorty is, go look him up. Go listen to some of his stuff. He's really good.
1: Mind-blowing. If you like
0: New Orleanian jazz at all, go look up Trombone Shorty. Could All right, I got a big list
1: of I got a mentions. long list of honorable mentions myself. And in fact, I was just going to say, I thought when you t- said you were wearing a U2 t-shirt, I just assumed you were going to talk about When Love Comes to Town with B.B. King. King. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You want to do yours first? Should I'll, I go? What do you want to
0: do? I'll run go through a few of mine. One that I thought you were going to pull out was Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. Too
1: obvious? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, it's too obvious. Walk This Way by Aerosmith. I thought run you DMC. were going to pull that one out. Uh,
1: I know. I love Run DMC, but I don't like Aerosmith. Uh, <laughs> Stop Dragging My Heart Around by Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's on my honorable mentions, and I'll just interject here that one of the reasons they recorded that song was because Stevie Nicks wanted to be a heartbreaker. Yes, she she wanted wanted to to join the band. band. And she told Tom Petty this, and he said, well, you can't join the band because you can't, but we'd love to do a song with you. And they made her an honorary heartbreaker. I have a whole list of just Tom Petty collaborations, but I'll get to that in mind. I'm sure you
0: do. Don't Fight It by Kenny Loggins and Steve Perry. Don't know that one numb encore which is two yeah, songs by lincoln park and jay-z yeah that watch the lyrics on that one kids it's a little <laughs> it's a little racy you said beat it by michael jackson and eddie van halen smooth by carlos santana and rob thomas radio song by rem and krs1 huh i don't know that one I'll Have is, to listen uh, to that clint eastwood by gorillas and dell the funky homo sapien just
1: occurred to me, man, Gorillas on its own should be should have been made my list, just as a band, as a collaborate as yeah, a collaboration. They're, they're crazy right. good.
0: Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. and Kate Pearson of the B-52s.
1: And she also shows up on we were just talking about this. Not that maybe that maybe that's what I was thinking of. I think of. that was yeah, yeah, one, that's what yeah. I was thinking of.
0: Kid Fears by the Indigo Girls. That one and shows up Michael on Stipe. my
1: list with Michael Stipe on backing vocals. Yeah. yeah
0: super cool from the Lego 2 movie <laughs> with Beck Robin and the guys from Lonely Island Wow <laughs> uh, and then one of my favorites Valley girl by Frank Zappa and moon unit Zappa nice. again watch the lyrics kids All this right. is
1: a little that one's a little racy too. What do you, what's on your uh, it's, a, it's a long list uh starting with while my guitar gently weeps uh george harrison out. didn't feel up to playing the solo so he asked his best friend eric clapton to do that for him and he did uncredited
0: i thought that was going to be on your uh,
1: it was on five. my it was on my list until i thought of some of the others it, it, yeah. it was in there originally uh speaking of eric clapton layla uh, most people don't yep. know that the second lead guitar is played by Dwayne allman uh clapton well, he went- was
0: he was a member of Derek and the dominoes
1: Yes. All right, we're going to have to check, take this up in take two, because the story that I read was Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes were in town recording, or wherever they were, someplace in Florida, I think, and they yeah. went to see the Allman Brothers, oh. and they were really impressed, and Dwayne Allman saw Eric Clapton in the audience, and he promptly froze and blew all the, re- the rest of the set, couldn't play anything right, <laughs> but they were still impressed enough to invite them to the studio, and then Eric Clapton asked him to stay and record one song, and it was Dwayne Allman who came up with the riff on Layla. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll we'll have to we'll have to check the Derek he, and the Domino's. Yeah, thing. we'll we'll check on Okay. That. Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin, who put out some amazing albums together. Johnny Cash's final albums were I yeah. think maybe some of his finest work. Mark Ronson, a serial collaborator, what he did with Amy Winehouse on Valerie, what he did with Bruno Mars on Uptown Funk. Yep. This is a this is a curious one. What's going on by Marvin Gaye? Can you picture the song in your head? Do you know how it opens up? Not the intro. It's a party. There's a party. You hear party noises. Okay. Can do you remember that now? Well, maybe we'll play yeah. a little little bit of that. The noises you're hearing, the voices and the glasses and everything, are being made by the Detroit Lions. Marvin Gaye was a huge football fan, a good That's athlete, awesome. and actually wanted to try out for the Lions, thought about doing it, thought better of it, but he, w- he had befriended many of the Lions players, and he invited them in the studio to have a party, and he recorded the party as the background noise for the intro of what's going on. Nice. I like that one. This is a quick one that doesn't really quite meet my rules, because, uh, well, we'll see. Uh, Tom Mission, and Yousef Dice. Dice. is a great drummer, not really a rock drummer. Yeah. Ask, your, ask your friend Roy Quinn about uh, Youssef yeah, Dais. You said, yeah. uh, they made some incredible music together, particularly one whole album, which you should go listen to, if, especially if you're a Tom Mish fan. Gotta mention Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die by Willie Nelson, uh, because yes. he invites some of his friends, including Snoop Dogg, to take a verse on <laughs> uh, I already used The Ghost of Tom Jode Tom Morello's involvement made that a better song with Bruce Springsteen, obviously. I mentioned I had a whole list of Tom Petty collaborations, in addition to The Traveling Woolberries, which we couldn't use because it was a super group. Yeah. Uh, and Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which you mentioned. The entire album Full Moon Fever was done with Jeff Lynn, Jeff Lynn. Uh, who was later, e. a yeah, yeah. later a Wilberry. Yeah, and later a Wilberry. That's right. And the entire album Long After Dark, which was an early 80s album yeah which used a lot of synthesizers tom petty was curious about using synthesizers so he got dave stewart from eurythmics to produce the album and play on a lot of the album wow so you might like uh you got lucky for example yeah, yeah. uh i got a few more and i'm almost done <laughs> uh, st- uh, speaking of stevie nicks the stevie nicks song stand back she wrote that song when she was driving to her honeymoon she and her new husband they were on their way to the honeymoon Little Red Corvette by Prince came on, on the radio. She started singing the lyrics to Stand Back. Just out, they just came out of her mouth over the same chord progression. They went in the studio and recorded it, and she said, I better call Prince and make sure this is okay, because we're using his yeah. chord progression. She yeah. called him, and he said, yeah, that's fine. You want me to come in and record something? And she was like, okay, 20 minutes later, he was in the studio, he played the synth on that song. Oh, wow. And there's a mix somewhere on the internet where you can hear just his synth, everything else drops out. And you can hear how much it sounds like Little Red Corvette, but also what he added to that song. And that makes that song. Uh, I'm almost done here. Just the last thing I'll mention is there's a whole bunch of, uh, you mentioned Kid Fears already. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of really great backing vocal cameos which which make their songs. Yeah. Kid Fears is one, Money for Nothing with Sting on backing oh, vocals. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, fame with John Lennon on backing vocals yeah, for the yeah. David Bowie song. You're So Vain with Mick Jagger on the backing vocals. Back up. And it was supposed to be Harry Nilsson, but he couldn't come to the session. So Carly <laughs> Simon called up Mick Jagger and he came in. <laughs> and then two, uh, just gonna recommend the movie 20 Feet from Stardom, which is about backing vocalists. Two yes. songs which are truly Really remarkable because of the backing vocalists who are legendary in the backing vocalist world but nobody knows their name which is great gig in the sky by pink floyd right and gimme shelter by the rolling stones and those both have great stories behind them which because they're honorable mentions i won't go into now hey rockers spring break is coming up you got something to do We've Got Bands, both weeks of the spring break, from April 25th through May 6th. You can come try new instruments, play the instruments you like, learn some new songs, make videos at the end of each week of the songs you've made with your band. You want some more information? You know where to go. www.rock-u.fr Okay, we're back. And it's been a while since we brought you something from the brilliant legal brain of my co-host, Seth Hinckley, <laughs> who is an attorney by trade. And we are now going to hear a new little uh, rock legal fact from Seth. So take it away, Seth.
0: So Matt's been bugging me to talk about the Blurred Lines case, where Blurred Lines, the Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke tune, went up against Got to Give It Up by Mar- Marvin Gaye. So just to give you guys a little, a little background... Blurred Lines came out and Marvin Gaye's family actually sent a demand letter to Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke stating that Blurred Lines infringed on the copyright to Got to Give It Up. The negotiations that they had failed. So, and here's the kicker that most people don't know, Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke and Clifford Harris, a.k.a. T.I., who had a, (laughs) a rap verse on the song, they were actually the ones that filed suit. Right. Against Marvin Gaye's heirs to get a declaratory judgment that they didn't violate the copyright on Marvin Gaye's got to give it up. So the gays the Gay family, I think it was his wife and his children, filed counterclaims against uh, against Williams and Thick, and including Interscope Records and Universal Music Distribution and a few others. So that's where the, the claim comes from, is the counterclaim against the declaratory judgment action that Thick and Williams filed. Here's one of the things you have to remember about this case. The law changes in certain spots. And one of those spots was January 1st, 1978, when Congress enacted the new Copyright Act. But since the original song, Got to Give It Up, was done in 1977, hmm. it was a work that was completed before January 1st, 1978. So, the Copyright Act of 1909 is the law that applies. And that act did not provide copyright protection for sound recordings. Hmm. This is important. Remember that. So during the case, Farrell gets deposed, meaning he's sitting in a room on a videotape with a lawyer asking him questions under oath. And he stated that he could read musical notation, but he couldn't write it. And then later when he was asked to read music notation on the page that was put in front of him, and he repeatedly said, uh, I'm not comfortable with that, meaning he didn't know how to read music. Prior to the case, or maybe while it was pending, Robin Thick said in an interview that was played on VH1, he essentially said that he copied Marvin gaye Got to Give It Up, and he admitted in deposition that in the interviews, he would say whatever he thought would sell records, whether it was true or not. <laughs> So, that puts his credibility in some serious question. Now, some other things that are outside the case that you may not have known about. This wasn't the only declaratory judgment that Farrell Williams ever filed. He had previously filed a, a, a declaratory judgment action against Will I Am saying that he didn't infringe his will.i.am trademark using one of his other companies I am. And Will I Am in that case Used the suit against gay's heirs, and I believe he also used Pharrell's use of Star Trek as his recording company name, and the logo looks really close to the Star Trek logo, (laughs) as evidence that Pharrell didn't respect the intellectual property rights of others. Okay, so keep all this in mind. So, the Gays only owned the composition copyright, the notes on the page, and we've talked about this before, not the sound recording. So, the law didn't provide for it. So, the only thing that they had was the notes on the page.
1: Go back and listen to, I think it's episode one, to hear Seth explain copyright.
0: Right. Interestingly, Marvin Gaye didn't write or fluently read sheet music either. And he didn't draft the deposit copy, which is the name that they give the written copy of the composition that gets deposited with the U.S. Copyright Office. Some unidentified transcriber wrote the sheet music after Marvin Gaye had recorded, got to give it up, and the deposit copy was attributed to Marvin Gaye. So, when they get in court, the case went to trial, so it ended up being a battle of the experts. So each side had a music expert or two testify as to the two compositions, not the recordings. Remember that. So the Marvin Gaye version of Got to Give It Up wasn't played to the jury because Williams and Thick filed a motion asking the court to exclude it from evidence because it could be too prejudicial to their case. <laughs> The court ruled prior to trial that the gays could only present sound recordings of Got to Give It Up that were edited to capture only the elements that were reflected on the piece of paper in the deposit copy as it was written. So, the radio version never was played to the jury. Now, there's a lot of videos on the internet on YouTube that complain about this, but the part that they don't get is they don't understand the law behind it and why they weren't allowed to play it. Because the copyright literally only applies to what was written on the piece of paper. So it was proven that Williams, at trial, it was proven that Williams and Thicke had access to the song, got to give it up because they admitted it, and that it was substantially similar. Now, there's a two pronged test that goes with the substantially similar part. One is an extrinsic test that looks at external objective criteria, in this case, the notes on the page. And the testimony of experts comparing the protected elements of the work, not the building blocks that are in the public domain. Building blocks like chord progressions or syncopated rhythms. You can't copyright those, but you put enough of those together in an original work and you can. If you think about it, that's where the gray area of copyright comes in. Now, the second one is a subjective intrinsic test, which is a fact question. Does And this is important. Does an ordinary, reasonable, person, i.e. the jury, (laughs) find that the total concept and feel of the work is substantially similar to the alleged infringed work. And again, this only applies to the protected elements of the copyright work, though it can be found in a combination of elements, even if some of those elements aren't individually protected. So, the jury said yes, and Williams and Thick lost at trial and were ordered after a bunch of post-trial motions to pay more than $5.3 million in damages and a running royalty of 50% of the future songwriter and publishing revenues received by Williams, Thick, and T.I. Obviously, they appealed. They're in California, so they went to the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is California and Oregon and Washington, I believe. So, here is the issue. To prevail on a copyright infringement claim, a plaintiff must show, one, that he or she owns the copyright in the infringed work. That's pretty easy. And two, the defendant copied the protected elements of the copyright work. So, absent direct evidence of copying, proof of infringement involves fact-based showings that the defendant had access to the plaintiff's work, that's number one, and that the two works are substantially similar. Access and substantial similarity, those two elements, are inextricably linked, according to the Ninth Circuit, at this point in time, and they adhere to the inverse ratio rule, which operates like a sliding scale. The greater the showing of access, the lesser the need of showing of <laughs> substantial wow. similarity is, wow. is required.
1: Yeah.
0: So, the Ninth Circuit was the only circuit that had that rule. Wow. Now, this is the law at the time that applies to the case. So, Williams and Thicke readily admitted at trial that they had a high degree of access to God to give it up. So, the Gay's burden of proof of substantial similarity was lowered accordingly. Now, this test, it's known as the inverse ratio rule, was later overruled in 2020 in an on banc Ninth Circuit ruling. That means that every judge in the Ninth Circuit, and I don't know how many of them there are, there's probably 40 of them heard this one case, ruled on the Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven case, (laughs) and got rid of the inverse ratio rule. But that didn't apply yet, because this case, I believe, was 2015 or 2016. So, the gays had a very low burden of showing that the compositions themselves were actually substantially similar. On top of this, copyrights extremely intricate in the legal terms. And I'm just going over, I'm cutting the tops of the trees for you. So there's a difference between what's known as broad copyright protection and thin copyright protection. And that's based on the range of expression. And I'm going to use the ninth circuit's own words to explain what that means. Musical compositions are not, and this is a quote from the ninth circuit, musical compositions are not confined to a narrow range of expression. They are unlike a page-shaped computer desktop icon or a glass-in-glass jellyfish sculpture. Now, those were two cases that they had previously decided. Rather, as we have observed previously, music is not capable of ready classification into only five or six constituent elements but is instead comprised of a large array of elements, some combination of which is protectable by copyright. Thus, the gays' copyright is not limited to only thin copyright protection, and the gays need not prove virtual identity to substantiate their infringement action. So, the gay family won the day. Now, the question is, would they have won if the case were contested now? Who knows? (laughs) The trial strategies for both sides would probably be a lot different. And in the light of the rejection of the rule that they used in this case after the Led Zeppelin case, I think you might see, you would definitely see a different outcome. Now, would it be completely different? I'm not sure. But that would that would be up to the lawyers in the case and the judges deciding it. And the jury, because there's a fact question that goes with it. So Amazing. Yeah. It's very intricate. And a lot of folks say, oh, they're they're different songs. You listen to them and it's like, A, you aren't allowed to listen to it under the Mm -hmm. law. And B, it's just such an intricate, really, the analysis is really, really tough to do. And not being able to listen to the song and having to listen to expert testimony about, well, yeah, there's these notes and this note, and the rhythm is such as this, and the way that the melody is played, and it's not just which instruments you pick, it's just the notes on the page. So, it's a lot of music theory, which is hard, hard for to me to yeah. understand yeah. just as a non-musically trained person, but trying to get 12 people in a jury box who agree to that, that's hard mm-hmm. too, so...
1: The, for you folks at home, you fans that listening at home, I'm watching Seth's brain expand as he talks about this copyright case. It, it's the size of a Volkswagen now. It's incredible. <laughs> I should take a picture.
0: So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? <laughs> Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr send us your thoughts or send us a voice memo and maybe if you're lucky we'll play it on the feedback portion of our
1: podcast whenever we do the feedback part Okay, rockers, we're back with this week's or this episode's one minute matchup. Uh, what we decided to do here, we want to talk about the number of guitarists in a rock band. And so, those of you from familiar with uh, sports betting, we decided to pick an over/under number of one point five, <laughs> and we're either going to take the over, which means two or more, or the under, which means one or fewer. And I suppose <laughs> there could be a half a guitarist in there somewhere, but I will really, we'll see how that we'll comes. We'll figure that out later. Okay, so Seth's going to go first. Ready, Seth? All right. Clock is ready. And three, two, one, take it away.
0: All right. So I'm going to take the over on two, uh, just because I, I think there's more examples of successful rock bands that have two or more guitarists. Uh, I mean, and if you have one, you got to have a really good one that carries your band like Eddie Van Halen or Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or Alex Lifeson. Uh But I'm going to go off my list of folks that have two guitars or more in their band and see if you agree that it works. Uh, The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds... Derek and the Dominoes with Clapton and Dwayne Allman, Maybe just for one song, but we'll get that figured out <laughs> later. Uh, ACDC with Angus and Malcolm Young. The Eagles. Uh, Leonard Skinnerd, the Allman Brothers. Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts. Uh, Dave Matthews Band when they added Tim Reynolds. Uh, Aerosmith. Joe Perry and the guy everybody forgets, Brad Whitford. Uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Foo Fighters, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, and Metallica. <laughs> And I'm at a
1: minute, too. There you go. All right. <laughs> we should have made this a two-minute matchup. This is a lot.
0: Long <laughs> long. <laughs> this is a lot. I'm going to go right. over
1: also. But fortunately, you 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 mowed some of my lawn there, so we'll oh, see that, how it goes. There you go. All right. All right. So your minute starts now. Well, I really surprised myself on this one because I, too, was going to take the over because the Beatles set the template for a rock band by having two guitars, a bass, and a drums. And I was thinking some of the same things as you in addition to ACDC and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Fleetwood Mac and Metallica, Guns and Roses, Almond Brothers, Rolling Stones Thin Lizzy Aerosmith The Clash Eagles Foo Fighters Pearl Jam Yardbirds And all those I was like Well that's pretty obvious But then I went and looked At the list of bands With only one guitarist And you mentioned Some of them already But here they are Police Led Zeppelin Van Halen Rush U2 Pink Floyd Rage Against the Machine Jimi Hendrix Experience Stevie Ray Vaughan And Double Trouble Green Day Nirvana Red Hot Chili Peppers The Who Black Sabbath And Ozzy Osbourne Solo Career Cream Muse And many more And yes And yes some of these bands do use overdubs to the create two guitar parts, or they do tour with an extra guitarist, but I realized there's a lot of opportunity for a guitarist when he's the only guitar in the band, and if you listen to some of these, particularly things like Led Zeppelin and Van Halen, there's no overdubs. That's one person, one guitar making those sounds, so I think the record stands with one guitar. Just over a minute. Really surprised myself on that one. I know, yeah. I know. Did you say Nirvana had one guitar? I did. I did. Pat Smear doesn't count? He played on some of their stuff, but I don't know if he played in the studio ever. Okay. We'll have to check that one. He certainly didn't play on Nevermind.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: If he was in In Utero... I don't know if he was on the studio tracks, but you just don't hear a lot of guitar on on Nirvana. That's not Kurt Cobain, if any. He did play he did play live shows with them. I know that. Yeah, but, he played a bunch of live shows. Yeah, as well. and as if Pat Smear's a mystery to me. I have no idea why he keeps playing, showing up. He doesn't really add anything that I can hear. <laughs> they loved him because he was with the I think well, it was Dave, the Germs or something. He was yeah. he was in the Germs. Yeah. And Dave Grohl loves
0: him because he's yeah. in the Foo Fighters. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Today's episode of Extra Credit The Rock You podcast is sponsored by our good friends and partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble is your one-stop shop for all Anglophone music creation in Paris. Go check out what they do at www.bigpebblerecords.com, including their first release, the EP Posture, by former Rock U student Person M. Extra credit, the Rock U podcast is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinckley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a non-profit association, loi 1901, and we'll see you next time.